Well, I can say with confidence that I have missed you all so much. <laughs> I think I was, I was sharing with Alice last week and then again with Ron just a few days ago that one month away was just too much time away for me. Uh, if there was any, any doubt, <laughs> and there isn't, there, I guarantee you, I assure you that there isn't, but if, if there was any doubt whether our kinship here was genuine, this time away would, would really rebuke all those thoughts and, and correct. Uh, we are most certainly a family here. I've missed you so very much. This morning, we begin a two-week mini-series before jumping into the Gospel of Mark in a study I have tagged in the light as we examine the opening words of John the Beloved in his first of three letters to the church in Asia Minor and, and, and really by extension us. This portion of scripture is and forever will be a foundational pillar to the shaping of our cross-shaped culture here in this congregation. This series through 1 John 1 will be an exploration of true doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. It is a call to our whole personhood to look at Christ our advocate and reason for living. A call to to deconstruct a world-shaped cultural view of fellowship. That's the main idea there, fellowship. But why would John write such a letter as this? This letter was written just a, just a few decades after Christ has died. That, that's not long at all. There, there are many people alive today that are older than the time Christ had resurrected to the time this letter was written. I mean, just, just think about that. Christ came, established an honest and intimate church, and already a few decades later, not even a lifetime, John is worried for the church. Worried that the growing appeal of a specific heresy has taken hold of the body. What is that heresy? What is that lie that John is worried the church will wear as truth? It is that you can be a Christian and not transformed. That you can be a Christian and continue in the ways of this world because sin is just no big deal. John fears a practical denial of God has been seen in the body. And let's be clear. It is very easy to assume that sinfulness, carnality, is expressed differently among Christians and non-Christians. This is untrue. Here are some examples. Sexual sin is sexual sin no matter the preferences indulged. Abuse is still abuse no matter the gender or expression of the person doing the abusing. All sin is still very much sin. And the heresy John is writing against is a practical living that everyone should just be all right with my sin because it's no big deal. During the last, or the next, sorry, the next two weeks, we will lay ourselves bare in submission to the text. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to not treat God nor each other's house guests. And what I mean is, is you know, 
when you're about to have company. Company is expected, right? And you didn't have all the time you needed to clean the house. So you, you shut all the doors because you stuffed all the things into other rooms. So you shut all the doors. You don't want to see, you don't want anyone to see the, the privacy of your messiness. John is going to argue for the next two weeks that the darkness you create by closing the doors to the light are actually bringing a darkness to the body. Do not treat with God and treat with each other as house guests. That's not the gospel living that we're aiming for. That's not obedient to the text. That's not the culture we want to establish here in this fellowship. John's opening argument is the defining of that word, fellowship, for the Christian. Fellowship. I'm going I'm to say that word a lot. It is a warning now. But the hope is, is we can put some meaning on it and some weight to the word so that we don't use it flippantly. John, he is arguing that this fellowship is between you and God and you and one another. He explains the hindrances that keep us from this fellowship and the benefits of belonging to this fellowship. (coughs) Excuse me. John wants to expose, expose the false doctrines and promotes the spiritual truths that he, but he also has an ethical purpose to this. He wants to talk about the attitudes we can have towards sin and the necessity of love for other Christians. He is writing this for the health of the bride, strengthening of our faith for genuine fellowship among all of us here and for our joy. So we'll break our study down over two weeks. This morning, looking to 1 John 1 through 4, the prologue of this letter, and see that John will give us the very theological foundation we need in order to move forward. So I've titled our time together this morning, A Fellowship for the Fellowship. As we will move through these four short verses and see the relationship the Father and the Son have is sort of reflective of the relationship between each other. The relationship the father and the son have is a relationship in the same vein that we have with him, which acts as the baseline of our fellowship with each other. I hope that's more helpful. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things So that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. Would you speak a word of prayer with me? God, we need your help this morning. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Your kindness. To be revealed once again to us. To make clear to our minds. God, we thank you for this fellowship here. That we are gathered in. I pray that you would gift me, the preacher, with clarity of speech and thought as you would gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. One of the many joys of being a father is being able to teach my children to influence their world. My wife and I decided very early on that we weren't going to hold our children to believe in the fictional characters that you and I probably grew up believing on certain important holidays and life milestones. (laughs) But but recently this year, I, I broke that rule. For Grayson's birthday, we went to MGM, or as it's called these days, Hollywood Studios. And there was a palpable wonder to the imagination of my two youngest children that I could not bring myself to correct. The characters of the park would come out periodically and, and my kids immediately tugged on my shorts and, and asked me, is that really a stormtrooper? Is that really Chewbacca? Is that really Woody and Buzz and Toy Soldier from the movie? Is it real, Dad? Grayson, my middle child, he, he says everything with his eyes, right? He'll, he'll try and lie to you straight up, but his eyes always tell the truth. He looked at me and said, is that really Mickey? Or, or is that a person in a suit? Because I think it's a person in a suit. But his eyes were betraying his words. I could tell there was the sincerest hope of, please tell me it's real. Please. And I confess, I said it was real. I couldn't help it. And then later on, I told him the truth. But there is a sense in them of, It's just too good to be true, right? That can't be who I think it is. That can't really be the person who I saw do incredible things on the TV and in the movies and read about in the books. Such such a marvelous being cannot exist, right? You may be living your life with a similar tension, with a similar wonder. And this is what John is affirming in the opening verse of this chapter. You wonder, can Christ, this Christ, be real? The one that I've read about, the one that I've heard about. Is he imaginary, fictional? Is he who he says he is? Did he do all that he has said he has done? And can I be honest with you, family? This is actually all of us. That's John's word to us right now. To walk in the light is just not a matter 
of cognitive theological clarity. How you live tells us what you actually believed. I mentioned before, John has a theological purpose for writing, and he has also an ethical purpose for writing, and both are birthed out of his pastoral purpose for writing. He can't start with verse 6. Right? He, he can't go straight to talking to us about practicing walking in the light until we address the state of our belief. There are practical questions we can ask to identify our theological inconsistencies. Ray Orland asked these questions. Who else in this church and among the people you know Who else knows what's really going on inside you? Who else knows what you're really facing? Who else knows that you're really not doing well? God does not want you to do it alone and has located you in this precious community to drop all pretense and become vulnerable. Family, think about this for us. I mean, close your eyes right now and answer these questions. Who else knows? Who else knows what you're going through? Who else knows the doubts that you have in your heart? Who else knows the level of frustration you feel? Think about it. Look up at me. Before this interpersonal fellowship can be addressed, we must address a fellowship that is the influence, the cause, the reason for it. The fellowship we have with God. John knows the fellowship he has with God and yearns for us to have it too. Reread with me verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and And with his son, Jesus Christ. The wording here uh, can be tricky to understand. I don't want to confuse you with the grammatical understandings. Maybe if you, some of, some of, I'm sure some of you already understand how to use the, the dashes and the way that John writes here. But it may be easier to understand it if we read it like this. We proclaim to you that which was from the beginning. That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked at, that which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's opening point is that Jesus is the word of life. His opening line, that which was from the beginning, is reminiscent of his other works. In his gospel, he begins it this way too. In the beginning was the word and in him was life. John 1.1 and 1.4. But here, John uses his favorite descriptor of Jesus, the Word. And he is proving to us, first and foremost, Jesus has existed from the beginning. 
Jesus has existed since way before his birth in Bethlehem. No, he has always existed. I like the way R.G. Lee puts it. He says this. Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother. The only man who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. I would add he had an earthly stepfather. Who was older than his mother and who is as old as his father. Jesus has always been in fellowship with the father because Jesus is God and therefore is eternal. We have to know this. It is a core tenet of the faith. Jesus is fully God, eternally present and sustaining the creation. Colossians 1.17 says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is our Jesus. That is our Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, who is and was and is to come, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, who before Abraham was born was the I am, who has neither beginning nor end, who remains our priest perpetually. John is saying, this is our Lord, this is our Jesus, our Messiah, a person of the Godhead in man's flesh. Jesus is the life. Not just that he had a life in his incarnation, but is life. He is life incarnate. You don't got to say amen to that, but I know it's true. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. To understand what he's really saying, we have to dip our our feet into chapter 5 a little bit. 1 John 5 verse 11 through 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. John wants us to know and know rightly that Christ is life and eternal life. And he invaded our space in time in an actual point in history and made it possible for us to have fellowship and eternal intimacy with the one true God. This is important, family, because it deeply affects the way we live. Belief in this truth that Jesus the Son had fellowship with the Father and came to this world so that we may also have fellowship with him is transformative. It is a truth that when fully embraced, realized, accepted, has everlasting consequences. When God becomes man and that's realized, it removes any notion in man that he can be God. Yeah. We can no longer do our own thing, live our own way, have free license to sin. We have no self-sufficient reality because Jesus is Lord. He removes, frees us, his children, from the burden of believing that they can be Lord. Because Jesus is Lord now. 
We have to listen to what he says. Because Jesus is Lord now, we have to live in the reality of what he has done. Because Jesus is Lord now, we have to live with our eyes fixed on him and our lives in his hands. Because Jesus is Lord, he is the way, the truth, and the life. John says, I heard him. John says, I have seen him. I have looked upon him and I have touched him with my own hands. John is making an eyewitness account of Jesus' humanity and his deity. John says, I was there in the fifth chapter of Matthew's letter when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, I was there in the ninth chapter of Mark's letter when he took Peter, James, and I to the mountaintop and he transfigured before my eyes. I saw it when his clothes became radiantly white that not even bleach could do. And I saw Elijah and Moses there talking with him. And he told me not to tell you this until after he rose from the dead. Speaking of, I was there in the 23rd chapter of Luke's letter when he spoke his final words. I looked upon him as he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I was there in the last chapter of my letter when he revealed himself resurrected to us and had breakfast with us. I sat at his feet. I cooked with him. I passed him the bread and the fish. I held his nailed scarred hands in my own. I love what John is saying here. Spurgeon comments, nothing wins people like a personal account. I love that. Nothing wins people's minds like eyewitness testimony. John's case for the incarnation of Christ is very simply, I have heard him, I have seen him, I have looked upon him with my eyes, I have touched him with my own hands. John is emphatically telling us Christ is real. He's not a legend or a phantom. He's not imaginary or folklore. He's no liar that deceived thousands. No, he is real and existed from the beginning. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with who? Us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That is the impact that Jesus has had on his people. Their world was different And they had to tell everyone. Jesus making you family with him means you want others to be family as well. That's a good one. Verse 3, John is saying, what I experienced, I also proclaim to you. I tell you about this. I, I share it with you. I can't remain silent about this in family. Neither can we. We cannot remain silent. We have to proclaim the eternal life-giving word that is Jesus with everyone. Because we have also seen. We have also heard. We have also touched and looked upon not the incarnate son in the physical, but in the spiritual. We have experienced him by way of his family. 
Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection, the fellowship that John is talking about? Jesus' fellowship with the Father meant that the fellowship he would have with his people would mean that they too would have fellowship with the Father. And that means that they will have a fellowship with each other. If, if, if you have any enjoyment in Christ, any one thing that you have learned from him, remember that is never in the context of you alone. It is always for others to share in with you. Koinonia. Koinonia, that's the Greek for fellowship used here. It means to have something in common. Something in common that is significant and important. By way of participation. It, It entails the joy and oneness in a group of people who are in a in an accord or regarding something that really matters a, a, a common working together for the goal <clears throat> John on in his book on prayer says this no longer are we individuals consumed with our own worlds we're interdependent parts of a body called to give thanks together and grieve together. Our joys and sufferings are no longer merely personal and confidential. They're meant to be felt vicariously. Everyone in the community is called to experience the joys of God's goodness in the lives of others while simultaneously inhaling the secondhand smoke of each other's hard times. Mm. The secondhand smoke of each other's hard times. I love that analogy. I hope dearly that what I'm about to say doesn't distract some of you from the beauty and the profundity of what I'm about to say. Uh, I mean, if this is a deal breaker, just let me know. We'll we'll have a conversation. We can figure something out. I want to share a a part of my life that I, I really enjoy partaking in. And there's a bit of a risk for me to share this with you. So confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. I understand it. I love smoking cigars. Again, I hope that's not a deal breaker. But if it is, we could talk about it. Don't just cancel me. But I love, I love it. I love it so much. I, I've been, let me, let me explain why. I, I've been doing it for about seven years now. And out of the seven years that I have been doing it, I can think of maybe four or five times, my wife will tell you, that I have done it alone, by myself. It's just not the same. I am most happy with the experience when I can inhale the aroma of someone else's cigar. I enjoy the experience so much more When the notes of someone else's experience are shared with me. I love, deeply love, when I get to give the compliment, hey, that one smells good. As things are typically for me, it's deeper than just the cigar. I am sharing with you in an experience of life. 
And even though the notes of our experiences aren't the same, mine may taste more bitter, more earthy, more grounded, and yours may be more sweet, more fragrant, more elevated, I get to share in that experience with you. I can't take it all. I don't have the entire experience you have. I didn't unwrap it. I didn't cut it. I didn't light it. I didn't get to to set a consistent smoke to it. No, you got the full experience of what you got going on all by yourself. I don't have the entire experience, but I can share in some of it with you in such a way that when you pull the lens out, when you zoom out of the frame of the experience of life together with you in this moment is so much more better than going at it alone. I hope you hear what I'm saying this morning. Unlike any other religion, and unlike any sermon our secular age is preaching to us, Christianity brings us into an intimate relationship with our Savior, and it doesn't end there. We also get intimate relationships with brothers and sisters in the faith. Brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Koinonia is both horizontal and vertical. From the dawn of history, humanity has tried over and over to bridge the seemingly infinite space between man and God. But we learn here in this beautiful letter of love that the great chasm is bridged by Christ. And John teaches us that fellowship with God is is not going to happen apart from fellowship with Christ. Fellowship is the spiritual connection between God and man and man with man. Believer to believer. It makes sense that John would make this connection implying deep relationship with God and each other as a friendship because he writes in his gospel the words of Christ saying this, John 15, verse 12 through 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants does not know what, the ma- what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is expressing his heart for his disciples in his final days. And he joins love, friendship, being known to the father all together. All of these concepts are now working in the first four verses of our text this morning. Our togetherness here in the local body, our friendship here, our fellowship here is reflective, emblematic, is a tangible, physical fellowship we share with the Father in Christ. In this fellowship, let me just say some things. In this fellowship... You should never feel alone because in your fellowship with Christ, you can never be alone. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You should never feel in this fellowship, you should never feel like you don't have peace. You should always have peace 
Because in your fellowship with Christ, you have his peace. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do you remember in our study of Mark when Jesus' family came? And he asked the crowd, who is my mother and my brother? You are. Those who do my father's will. The most important thing you can have in common with someone is not your blood. It's not your race. It's not your preferences, but your union with Christ. And that is more significant than even those unsaved in your family. Who is your brother and who is your sister? Look around the room. Who is your brother and who is your sister? This fellowship is sweeter and closer than any other fellowship you can have. Later on in the letter, John is going to talk about the practical implications of this, and we'll do that next week. But this morning, what we have is deep orthodoxy that should lead to our deep orthopathos, deep truths that inform and stir deep emotions. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is a direct quote. This is a direct quote from Jesus in, in, in in his gospel letter. John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 17, 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. All three of these examples, Jesus' concern is the joy of his people being made full or complete. John writes, verse 4, with the same concern of Christ, that the fellowship's joy may be full or complete. He is concerned that the church may not only be uh, sustained, but also increased to the fullness of the words of Christ. As one commentator says, when Christ's joy is fulfilled in us, then our joy may be full. Family, see, I mean, see the connections John is making here. The evidence of our Savior's deep attachment to his people is seen in that he is not content with having made their ultimate salvation sure, but he is anxious about their state of mind. He delights that his people should not only be safe, but happy. Not merely saved, but rejoicing in his salvation. Family, Jesus is concerned with your heart's state, with the things that go on inside of you. He is for your joy, that you have a heart full of joy, that you may know what joy means, not defined by the small glimpses of joy we experience here in this world, but the joy that we can only receive in him and share in with your church family. True joy is not found by the outward circumstances of this life, 
but shaped by the cross of Christ and experienced in fellowship, vertical and horizontal. Joy is your present reality in Christ. Joy is your strength. Joy is your shield. And you can hold tightly to Christ's joy and lock arms tightly with those around you as you sing together, what a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, what a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. The song says, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Stand with me in worship.